I had planned in my planning to be preaching on Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16. But if you were here last week, our guest preached on those verses. So he kind of surprised me. And so this morning, uh, as we continue part two of our Sermon on the Mount, we'll be in Matthew 5 and we'll, be, uh, we'll begin with, with verse 17. Many of you can remember being in high school or junior high and looking forward to football season starting. You, you couldn't wait to be out on the field playing the game. You weren't so excited about the two-a-day part uh, in August and, and the heat, but you couldn't wait to be playing, to be, to be out there. Maybe, uh, maybe volleyball. Maybe you were excited about volleyball and being out on the court. Uh, some of you who are gamers, you know the date that a specific game is going to come out, and you anticipate that date for months. I can remember when, when I was in high school anticipating the date I got my driver's license, and I started counting back like 500 and something days until. That's a terrible way to do it because it makes it take forever. But, but we have this tendency to look at, at something that we're excited about and to look forward and and. And we can't wait for something that, that we've been anticipating to happen. Well, this morning, we're going to look at how God's word was anticipating the work of the Lord Jesus and how Jesus comes and he's fulfilling all of this anticipation that, that we saw in the Old Testament beginning early in Genesis. And so we're going to see how the plan of God is fulfilled and is being fulfilled at this point in the scriptures in the life of of the Lord Jesus. As we look at this passage, it will help us understand the importance of the scriptures. And as we think about the 4th of July and all that's going on in our country, it'll give us an opportunity to reflect on on religious freedom in in relation to, to the scriptures. So at this point in Jesus' ministry, he is very popular. Crowds are gathered around him. They're following him. And he begins to teach the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, on, a, on a hill just north of the Sea of Galilee. And as he begins to teach, he looks at his disciples particularly, and he begins to teach his disciples what it means to be a faithful follower of his. This is how you live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That, that's what Jesus is going to be teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's look together at Matthew 5, beginning in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches others them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In this text, we see four ways that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. First, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament in that in his life and in his teaching, he accomplishes God's intended purpose For the Old Testament. He accomplishes God's intended purpose for the Old Testament. Look there in in verse 17. Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, this word for abolish was also used to describe a building that was destroyed or demolished. 
So Jesus says, I didn't come here to demolish or to destroy what God has set up to this point. The law and the prophets really should be understood, and we could see this in a, in a lot of passages. We won't take the time to look at them together. But the law and the prophets is a way of saying the Old Testament, what God has set up to this point. Jesus says, I didn't come to destroy that. I, I'm not about destroying what God has spoken. Now, remember at this time, there are a lot of Jews saying, what's this guy about? His teaching is so different. What's he about? And so he says, I come to fulfill them. Now, notice when he says, I come, there's a sense in which we get the idea that Jesus is a part of a mission. He's on a mission. He's a part of what God is doing. In fact, he's the central character in God's plan for the rescue of people, and he understands that. He has come for a purpose, and his purpose is to fulfill. It's to fulfill what God has done up to this point in human history. So you see that that God created everything and it was good and right. But Adam and Eve rejected his plan, brought sin into the world. Every human heart from that moment on has been broken. All of creation is broken by the effects of sin. And God promised that he would send a rescuer, a redeemer. And now Jesus is fulfilling the very promises of God. He's fulfilling the perfect righteousness that was required by the law. He was fulfilling the prophecies that that God had given in years past. Jesus is accomplishing all of those things. In John 5.39, Jesus speaking to the Jews said this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. So what does he say? He says to the Jews and to the Jews who were opposing him, you search the Old Testament thinking that somehow by your ideas about the Old Testament, you're going to gain eternal life. But you need to understand that if you're thinking that these scriptures are about something besides me, you're off base. Because the Old Testament Well, it testifies about me. It points forward to what God would do through me. That's what Jesus is saying here quite clearly. Now, if we were going to observe the entire process of an iPhone being manufactured and we went to the very beginning where the raw materials were being gathered, and let's suppose we didn't know what the final product would be, but we saw this gathering of the various raw materials that would eventually make up an iPhone. And we saw as those parts began to be manufactured and put together, and as those intricate circuits were were put together. And then eventually, we saw the entire phone come together all the way to the point that that it goes to retail or it's put on a store shelf. Along the way, we might not understand what was happening. When we see the the gathering of the raw materials, we we might not get it all. But if somebody said to us, hey, this is our aim, then all of this would begin to make sense. And this is what Jesus says to them. God has been speaking and working, but now you can see this is the reason. It's because I've come to rescue and to save. I've come to take your place. I've come to die on a cross. Ultimately, Jesus would say that your sins might be forgiven. And so, suddenly, we see the fulfillment of of God's plan in the Old Testament. Second, Jesus is the fulfillment 
of the Old Testament and that he affirms the truthfulness and the authority of the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament in that he he affirms the truthfulness and the authority of the Old Testament. Look in verse 18. For truly I say to you, heaven and earth will pass away, but not an iota, not a jot will pass from the law. So in verse 18, when he says truly, this is a way to say what I'm about to say is very important. Jesus does it often. Listen to me, get this. Heaven and earth may pass away, and what he's saying is all of creation, that all of creation may, may be gone, but the word, every bit of it, until it is accomplished, it will remain. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that the Old Testament is reliable. In fact, he uses the word iota here, and of course, this is the, the Greek language. The iota is the smallest letter in the Greek language, but more than likely, Jesus was referring to the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet because he's talking about the Old Testament. The smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet was a yod. It looks a lot like an apostrophe. So he's saying not the smallest letter of the alphabet is going to pass away. And he goes on to say not a dot. And many commentators believe that this refers to just simply a little mark or a dot. Imagine how a single line in the English language can differentiate a C and a G. Well, there are similar letters in the Hebrew alphabet in which just a simple little stroke changes them from this letter to that letter. Jesus is saying not the smallest letter, not even the smallest stroke of a pen is going to pass away. Jesus believes that the Old Testament is true, and he's committed to that. He's committed to the truthfulness of the scriptures. In in Luke 16, 17, he says something similar. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. One dot. Once again, we see the smallest stroke. The smallest stroke. Now, if I made a plate of chocolate chip cookies, I got to give Mark Gramling credit for this illustration. I've modified it a bit. Mark's probably relieved to hear that. But if I had a plate of chocolate chip cookies and when the dough was being mixed, a fly got into the dough in the mixer, flew in. I look around, can't find it. It's a big, it's a big batch. What's a fly? What, what difference is that going to make? So we bake these cookies, put them on a platter, and I bring them to you. And I say, guess what? These are yours. So you should know this. A fly, it was a small fly, got into the dough. I couldn't find it, but I don't think it's any, I don't think you'll even notice it. Just just have this wonderful batch of chocolate chip cookies. You'd probably perhaps take them, but as soon, as soon as I walked out the door, they're gone. You're throwing them in the trash. You're not going to eat those chocolate chip cookies because even if there's just a little bit of fly in a particular cookie, you're not interested Well, here, I think it's quite clear Jesus is saying that the scriptures are absolutely true. It's not like some of them are true or there are errors in part of it. But no, it's really all true. That's what Jesus is saying here. You can really believe the scriptures. It's not like part of them have that fly that we'd want to discard. But all of them, all of them are real and, and reliable and true. 
So we've seen that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and that he affirms the truthfulness and the authority of the Old Testament. Now we see, third, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and that he teaches obedience to God. He teaches obedience to God. Look in verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So he says, whoever takes these Old Testament commands and relaxes them, tries to make them less than they are. And he says, even the least of the commands. And uh, back in the day, uh, a lot of the the Jewish elite would, would categorize the commands. This command is smaller and this command is greater. And Jesus says, you pick the least one. And whoever relaxes that, well, he's going to be considered less in the kingdom. He's not going to receive the kind of reward that he could have had if he had been faithful to the scriptures. But the one who does the word and who teaches others to do the word, well, he's going to know or she's going to know great reward in heaven. Now, you're going to say, wait a minute. There's a lot of commands in the Old Testament we don't follow today. There are. For example, the sacrificial system. If you and I sin, or when you and I sin, we don't have to go and sacrifice an animal for the forgiveness of sins. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled that. His life became the ultimate sacrifice that that God's wrath towards sin might be received by the Son. And through the Son, we don't have to face the wrath of God. An animal doesn't have to be killed. Jesus was killed. The perfect lamb was killed. So Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Now, a lot of the dietary commands and similar commands, they pointed to the holiness of God and and, and they set God's people apart as distinct. And we see that that Jesus fulfills those. But there are a lot of commands in in the Old Testament that are still binding. Why? Because they reflect moral aspects of the law. The Old Testament must be understood in light of the life and the teachings of Jesus and the rest of the the New Testament. So when the Old Testament says, don't steal, you can't say, well, that's Old Testament, so now we can steal. No, the the New Testament reaffirms the fact that that a person has a right to their own property. So we follow the moral commands of the law. Now, a lot of the times people today will say, oh, well, uh, they're inconsistent. They eat bacon now, so you can do whatever you want. A person who says that shows that they have no grasp of the message of Scripture. They have no understanding of of the teachings of Jesus. You see, we must be consistent in affirming the moral law of Scripture, Old Testament or New Testament, and recognize that all of Scripture is interpreted in light of God's great plan of redemption through Christ. So, Matthew 23, 23 and 24, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Jesus says, you're so focused on the tiniest aspects of the law, you don't care about the weightier things, justice and mercy. Well, what's his point here? His point is that it's about the heart. It's obedience that's about the heart. It's not that we get to decide which commands of Scripture we get to obey or don't obey. No, we're called to obey all of the the, the teaching of Scripture. 
But it's not an outward obedience. It's an obedience that's driven from the inside out. The, the right heart. The right heart. Now, often today, folks will try to say, well, I'm going to understand Scripture in light of Jesus. And then this is what they say when they come to a part of Scripture they don't like. They say, well, Jesus would never say that. And yet Jesus affirmed the importance of the teachings of Scripture, all of them. So we don't get to use Jesus as sort of our, our own um, way of picking the Scriptures we like and don't like. We, we, we can't do that. We've got to be consistent with what Jesus teaches. Yeah, Jesus says, be concerned about tithing your mint, your dill, and your cumin, but make sure that your heart's right. Make sure that your heart is set on the Lord, on honoring Him, not on exalting yourself and showing off before others. Paul said in Colossians 2.16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. What was Paul saying? He was saying that many of the Jewish laws that were related to the ceremonial aspects of the law are no longer binding on believers. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled those. In his perfect righteousness, he fulfilled them. That's why. Now, in our nation today, there are many who would tell believers who hold to the scriptures, you need to make some changes. Because you guys are not going along with everyone else. You're not playing fairly. You're not heading in the right direction. And we see some very serious challenges to religious liberty in our day. And I do mean very serious. This week in California, Senate Bill 1146 is being considered and debated in the General Assembly. And basically, this bill would put Christian higher education institutions in California, that is, those that believed the Bible, it would basically put them out of business. Let me read to you a quote from Holly Shear of The Federalist regarding this legislation. People used to expect that attending something sponsored by a religious organization required abiding by mores and behavior that religious body professes. There was a simple option for avoiding the ideas or practices of a belief system you don't agree with. Don't frequent their space. This courteous expectation naturally applied to all religions and expressions of faith. She continues, California is now attempting to end this system of free association that allows people to define their local and religious cultures. California Senate Bill 1146, which is cited for a vote Tuesday, seeks to limit the religious exemptions of federal Title IX regulations that colleges and universities use for hiring instructors, teaching classes, and conducting student services in line with their faith. Under the bill, a college would be eligible for an exemption only for training pastors or theology teachers. She continues, This bill threatens religious institutions' ability to require that students attend daily or weekly chapel services, keep bathrooms and dormitories distinct according to sex, require students to complete theology courses, teach religious ideas and regular coursework, hold corporate prayer at events such as graduation, and so on. In summary, Shear suggests it threatens every practice that makes religious institutions distinct from secular institutions. There are dozens of confessional Christian schools Uh, and universities in California that will be affected dramatically if this legislation passes. You see, 
Our culture wants to push us away from the faithfulness of Scripture and away from obedience to Scripture. Another example, um, there are countless, but, but here's another. This past week, the Supreme Court declined to hear a case that involved a, a family-owned pharmacy. This family-owned pharmacy did not want to provide emergency contraceptives uh, because many of these contraceptives are believed to prevent the implantation of an egg that's already been fertilized. In other words, to cause, to cause an abortion of a, of a baby uh, that, that, that is alive. And, and so this pharmacy said, you know what, we don't, we don't want to provide that drug. And within five miles of the pharmacy, there were 30 other drugstores that provided that, that, uh, the particular emergency contraceptives that were in question. 30 others within five miles and when people came in looking for those drugs, that pharmacy referred them to one of the other stores. So we, we don't carry that. But the state of Washington passed a law that prevented that kind of discretion amongst pharmacy, uh, uh, pharmacists. And this is what happened. The Supreme Court said, we're not going to hear the case. There weren't four justices on the U.S. Supreme Court who were willing to consider the religious objections of that pharmacist at this family-owned pharmacy. And responding to this decision not to hear the case, Justice Alito wrote, if this is a sign of how religious liberty claims will be treated in the years ahead, those who value religious freedom have cause for great concern. Justice Alito summarized, violate your sincerely held religious beliefs or get out of the pharmacy business. That was the message of the U.S. Supreme Court this past week. And we could provide example after example after example of religious freedoms in our country being pushed and being shrinked because in our nation we're being told, you go along. You abandon what the Bible clearly teaches. If you want to have a place in this society and this progressive culture that's advancing on, you better abandon the Bible. What does Jesus say here? Obedience is required. Not in our own strength, by the grace of God, of course, but we can't abandon the the teachings of Scripture. We can't do that. We've got to be faithful. We can't set aside the Bible because the world tells us that's where we have to go. We can't do that. We've got to be faithful, whatever the cost. Whatever the cost. So we've seen that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and that he teaches obedience to God. But fourth, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and that he requires a changed heart. He requires a changed heart. Look in verse 20. He says, unless your righteousness is greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're never going to enter the kingdom of heaven. You're never going to. Well, who were the scribes and the Pharisees? The scribes were the religious experts. They knew the law backwards and forwards. They were like like the attorneys of the day. And the Pharisees, well, these were the guys who emphasized following all of the law, but not just that. They added a whole bunch of extra rules. And so the Pharisees didn't just say, well, follow God's law. They said, follow God's law plus all of our rules. And these guys were considered in the culture of the day the most righteous But what did Jesus say? Unless your righteousness is greater than that of a Pharisee or a scribe, you will not go to heaven. What did he mean? How could you have a righteousness that's greater than that of the scribes or the Pharisees? How how could you do that? 
Well, you see, what Jesus meant was that we couldn't enter heaven based on our own righteousness. We needed a righteousness that was greater than our own. We needed a righteousness that was perfect. And that's why Jesus came. That was his mission. He lived a perfect life. And when we turn from our sin and believe in him, we get credit for his perfect life. God looks down and sees the perfection of the Lord Jesus if we've turned from sin and believed in him. And he takes our sin upon himself at the cross. It's a great exchange. We get the righteousness of Christ and he takes the penalty for our sin from a God who's holy and who's pure. And Ezekiel 36, 26, looking forward to the time of Christ, the prophet said, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a heart that longs to please God. In other words, a righteousness that comes from the inside, not an external righteousness. In Romans 6, 17, Paul said, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Again, obedience is coming from within. Why? Because my heart has been transformed by the Lord Jesus, because my sins have been forgiven, because I put my faith in him, and he begins to shape and to change my my heart, begins to to reform me. In Hebrews 8.10, the scriptures say, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The kind of righteousness that is required to enter the kingdom of heaven is a righteousness that you and I can never attain. I don't care how good you are. None of us can stand before a holy God on our own merit. Not one of us. We need the righteousness of Christ on our account. In fact, in James 2.10, the scriptures say, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. What is the writer of James saying here? He's saying that just one sin separates us from a holy God and every one of us is guilty. Guilty of countless sins against a holy and righteous and pure God. We have no hope on our own. Our only hope is that we would come to the Lord Jesus in faith and we would call out to him and say, you know what, Jesus, I've gone my own way. I'm guilty and I believe you came and died on a cross for my sin, that you were buried and that you rose again. I believe that and I want to follow you. And the Bible says when we call out to God in that way and we mean it, that he gives us a brand new heart, a heart that's alive and beating. And this sinful flesh that we still live with well, we begin to desire to quit living in our old sinful ways. We begin to change, and he begins to, to shape us and, and remake us. So let's think through what all of this means today. First, we understand and follow the Old Testament in view of the life and teachings of Jesus as well as the New Testament. Don't let someone try to argue with you and say, well, unless you don't eat bacon, then you can't say X, Y, or Z. That's an immature reading of Scripture. That's an uninformed reading of Scripture. No, force them to consider the words of Jesus here and in other places. Second, we maintain complete trust in the Bible. Can we really believe that the Bible is true in all that it says? Can, can we really believe that? You see, since the Enlightenment, there's been a sense in which reason 
The reason of people became a deci- uh, uh, The reason of, of people was elevated over the authority of Scripture. And now suddenly, as a man with my reason, I sit over Scripture and I judge Scripture. And I decide if this is true or that's true. I decide what part I like or what part I don't like. There's none of that here. There's none of that here in the words of Jesus. You see, I recognize that in our day and time, if I say I believe all of this book, that I'm going to be called unsophisticated. Probably going to be called a lot worse. I recognize that to do that in many ways in the academy is intellectual suicide. Have you read it? Have you read all that? You really believe it? But I'm saying to you that I want to be no less sophisticated in my understanding of Scripture than the Lord Jesus himself. I want to be no more sophisticated, no more intelligent, no more enlightened than Jesus himself. And I think the clear understanding of Jesus himself is that God has spoken and that his words are true. Here, Jesus says, not an iota, not a stroke. In Matthew 12, 40, Jesus affirms one of the stories that liberal theologians and those who don't believe the Bible toss out immediately, the story of Jonah and the great fish. But in Matthew 12, 40, Jesus affirms that story. In Matthew 19, 3 through 6, Jesus affirms his belief in Adam and Eve. And we know if you're going to be enlightened in this day and time, you can't believe in something like Adam and Eve. In Luke 16, 17, as we mentioned earlier, Jesus says, not one dot. In John 10, 35, Scripture says, or Jesus says, Scripture cannot be broken. In John 17, 17, in a prayer to the Father, Jesus says, your word is truth. What else does the Bible say about it? In 2 Samuel 7, 28, David says, your words are truth. In Psalm 1, 19, 42, David says, I trust in your word. In Romans 3, 4, Paul says, let God be true, though every one a liar. In Romans 15, 4, Paul recognizes the Old Testament as scriptures. In 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 17, we're told that all scripture is breathed out by God. In 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21, we're told that scripture came from God. In 2 Peter 3, 16, Peter is already calling Paul's writings scripture. So what does the Bible say about itself? The Bible claims to be the very word of God. And this is what I believe. I believe by the hand of God, God moved the hearts of people who would write down the scriptures, not word for word, but through their own personalities, through their their own lives, through their own experiences, but that God was at work ensuring that every word was his. Every iota, every stroke was his own. And I believe that by his grace, he has allowed the scriptures to be preserved. That he hasn't given us his word and then made it impossible for us to know it, but that he's given us his word. And I believe by his grace, he has preserved his word. One theologian says, with 99% accuracy, we can be sure that we have the very words that were written. When you look at textual criticism and the the, uh, document, the Greek uh, New Testament, the documents that are available... Um, great minds have tackled every allegation or are tackling every allegation against this idea that the scriptures are not true and that they're unreliable. And I want you to know, if you have a question, 
If you come against a question and this person says, well, the Bible can't be true because of X, let's do some research because I want you to know, I believe that God has made a way for his scriptures to be preserved and I believe someone has answered that objection. I believe that the Bible can withstand the questions that have been thrown at it. I fully believe that and I believe that Jesus' own testimony should guide us in our understanding of scripture. Three, We seek to obey all of God's commands with his help. We don't pick and choose the commands we like. What the Bible says, we follow, even if it's unpopular. We come to the Bible not like a general approaches his troops, but we come to the Bible as one on bended knee who says, God, you judge the thoughts and intentions of my heart. Your word is living and active. You shape and transform me. So it's not a buffet where we pick and choose. It's the very word of God in which we submit. Fourth, we recognize that having a new and transformed heart is required. Maybe you heard about the Delta flight from from Atlanta to, to Phoenix in which a man appeared to be having heart trouble, became unconscious. Tim Tebow was on the flight, and he prayed with the family and led the, the family in prayer. But as you think about that man who had that, that heart issue, he needed help. People began to do chest compressions. They brought the AED out and, and began to, to use that to try to rescue him. That man could not rescue himself. He, he couldn't do it. He needed to be rescued. And that's a picture of us and our sin. We, we need to be rescued. We need, God to, to, we need God to rescue us. So how do we get God to rescue us? We call out to him. We turn from our sin and we believe. Now today, our nation is looking at and exploring and trying to put together a mission to Mars in which people would take a trip to Mars. Now if we could see all of the plans and all of the documents that were going into that mission, it would be overwhelming. It would be overwhelming to look at all, the, the, all of the, the plans related to engineering, all the plans related even to, to biological concerns. But here in the scriptures, we've been given God's plan to rescue people. We've, we've got it right here. Folks, let's be serious about the word. Let's read it and study it and be shaped by it. Let's Let's let the Lord shape our hearts. And where there are honest questions, let's look for answers. I think, there, I think that we can find answers to every question. I, I believe that. I believe we'll find that every man may be a liar, but that God's word will always be true. And by his grace, we can live a life that pleases him and that honors him. So let's be a people of the word who read it, study it, trust it. And if you don't know Jesus today, my prayer is that like that man who's laying in the aisle needs someone to rescue him, that today you'll see your need for Jesus and he'll be rescued. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for giving us your word. I pray that you will help me to be a faithful preacher of your word. But not only that, help me to live it to be a godly man who's shaped by it. And I pray that for the rest of us who are, who are Christians here today. Let us be transformed and shaped by your word.
Father, please. I pray for others who don't know you. You might move and work in their hearts, bring them to a place of trust in life. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Now's an opportunity for us to respond to the Lord. Um, Any way the Lord might be moving in your heart, I want you to feel the freedom to to respond. I'll be up here. I'd love to talk with you more. You may just want to come and pray. Um, If you have questions about becoming a part of this church family, we could certainly uh, visit about that as well. However the Lord's leading you, let's stand and sing.